Tonight's scripture reading is found, of course, on page 8 of your bulletin. We'll be reading Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, You give them something to eat. They said to him, That would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was five thousand. This is the word of the Lord. We've been looking at the uh, book of Mark and the life of Jesus in the book of Mark. And uh, tonight we come to a very, very famous passage, Jesus feeding the multitude. And uh, the good news for me is that, you know, whenever whenever we come to passages of Scripture, when I'm studying to prepare uh, for the teaching, I look at many, many, many different views and many different commentators and, and scholars and so on. And uh, often I have to choose because there's a, sometimes there's difference of opinion about what the passage means and what the symbolism is. I was amazed that there's really very little uh, controversy about this. The symbolism, the significance and meaning of this passage is not controversial. The symbolism is relatively plain, very rich, very wonderful. My, my real challenge is how do I get it all across you know, uh, in a nice, clear, and comprehensive way, and here's how I'm going to do it. Okay. This passage is, number one, about a revolution. But secondly, it's about a revolution that no one expected, a completely unexpected kind of revolution. Number three, led by impossibly unqualified revolutionaries. And number four, based on a shocking revolutionary act. This is about a revolution but a completely unexpected revolution led by unqualified, impossibly unqualified revolutionaries and based on a shocking revolutionary act. Point one. This is actually about a revolution. Now, I know that's probably not what it looks like. If, even as you read through it, um, even as uh, certainly if you've ever studied it in Sunday school or something like that, this is a warm fuzzy, isn't it? It's a warm fuzzy. Jesus at a picnic 
see? Everyone's sitting on the green grass and eating, and you can almost see the, uh, the, the red checkered uh, tablecloths, you know, or, sp- or spread out on the ground. But that's not, let's, let's not visualize it that way, because that's not what this is about at all. The textual and historical context tells us it's about something quite different. When Jesus Christ left the villages and towns of Galilee to go across the lake in order to find uh, peace and quiet, he was going to the remote part. He was going to the rural part, the hill district. When he went there, he was on his way to the hotbed of revolutionary resistance to the Roman imperial rule. It was in the, uh, the hill country, it was in the remote and rural re- regions that all the freedom fighters, that all the guerrillas were holed out and hiding out. Uh, the, the sympath- this is the place where everyone was sympathetic to uh, the zealots. This was the center of the zealot movement, and the zealots were represented. They, they stood for the violent overthrow of, of Roman rule. And so they come to the other side of the, uh, of the lake, and here's this enormous crowd literally out in the middle of nowhere. This is a very unpopulated region. This is like, this is like the whole region has turned out. And when it says 5,000 men, it probably means heads of families. So there was actually five, uh, 15 to 20,000 people there, but it might mean that only the men showed up. Because why were they there? Why was this crowd gathered in the middle of nowhere? John, in his gospel account of this incident, in John chapter 6.15, he comes right out and says what Mark hints at here, and that is, John 6.15, they came to make him king by force. This is the place where everyone wanted a revolutionary leader. Jesus shows up. They come out. Why? They want a revolution. I mean, don't forget, if you've been with us through this uh, walk through uh, the book of Mark, just immediately before this is the story of Herod and the murder of John the Baptist. What a vivid depiction of the most oppressive, exploitive kind of imperial rule. No wonder they yearn for a king. Jesus goes to the part of the, of the country. It's the center of all the revolutionary fervor in that whole region of the world. They wanted him to be a revolutionary leader. They wanted him to be a king. They wanted a revolution. That's what they're after. Point one, but point two. And some of you are really excited. Point two already? Don't get your hopes up. All right. Okay, just it. This is wonderful. Point two already. Point two. This is a totally unexpected kind of revolution. When Jesus looks at them in verse 34 and sees them as sheep without a shepherd, that is a very significant uh, phrase. Oh, of course, when you and I think, and this is right, when you, when you and I look at what the Bible says about shepherds and sheep, it's generally a pastoral image. So Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, the shepherd loves the sheep and nurtures and cares for the sheep. Yes, yes, yes. However, Jesus is actually quoting here Moses prayer to God at the end of his life, Numbers 27, where Moses says, after me you must give the children of Israel a political and military leader. So Jesus is actually quoting Numbers 27, goes like this. This is Moses praying to God and saying, may the Lord appoint a man over this community to go out and lead them so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. And almost every place in the Old Testament that talks about sheep without a shepherd is talking about uh, the need for a political military leader. So when Jesus looks out and sees them coming and says they're like sheep without a shepherd, he knows what they're after. They want him to be the revolutionary leader. 
who uh, uh, liberates them from oppression. He wants, they want him to be another Moses, another Joshua. And now that you know that he sees them that way, you realize what an incredibly weird and strange and almost shocking verse, verse 34 is. Because verse 34 says, when he saw that they wanted a revolutionary leader, sheep without a shepherd, when he saw they wanted liberation from oppression, he began to preach and teach the gospel. Do you see that? That's how he responds. He begins to preach and teach the gospel. Now look, guerrilla revolutionary leaders in remote rural parts of the Middle East, when their disciples come to them and say, you know, liberate us from oppression, they give out uh, weapons and they start weapons training. Okay. They're doing that in those places to this very day. They're doing it today. They give out weapons and they do weapons training. Jesus Christ gives out his word and bread and he gives the disciples bread distribution training. And that's the reason, and that's his response to their calling for a revolutionary leader and liberation from oppression. And that's the reason why the commentators know that what Jesus is doing is a radical repudiation of the liberation models of the day. So here's one commentator who says, uh, it is clear from this account that Jesus will not march to the populist and militarist drumbeat. Here in Mark 6, he dis- disavows the zealot model of liberation. But he doesn't disavow a model of liberation. When he gives the word and he gives bread, what is he saying? Now, look, to you and I, in our modern culture, what does bread mean? When you look at bread, you know what it means to us? It means carbohydrates. <laughs> that's, that's the deep symbolic meaning of bread to us. But in ancient times, when there wasn't quite as many options in food, and when the, uh, it wasn't as certain that the food would be there when you needed it, bread meant life. Bread was a symbol for life. And Jesus is saying, I'm a revolutionary leader, but other revolutionary leaders come dealing out death. I come dealing life. So when he starts giving out his word and bread, he is actually saying, I'm bringing you life in two ways. He says, I'm a revolutionary leader. I'm bringing you life, but in two ways. Life through word and life through deed. Through word and life through deed. How so? Like this. First of all, when he begins to teach them many things and then begins to distribute bread, he is, he is pointing to the life-giving nature of his word, of his message, of the gospel. His, the life-giving nature of his word, the message, of the gospel. Because constantly Jesus talks about his word and the gospel as bread. So, for example, um, in, uh, when Jesus is arguing with the devil you know, in Matthew 4, he says uh, to, to the devil, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, God's words, bread. And then in John 6, Jesus says, It is not Moses who gave you the true bread from heaven when he fed you with manna in the wilderness. It is my Father who gives you the true bread of heaven. Your forefathers ate the manna, and they died. But here is the bread that a man may eat and not die. Don't work for food that spoils, but for the food that endures unto eternal life, which the Son of Man can give you. Wow. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. He is saying, you have a hunger in you 
deeper than the physical hunger. You have a hunger that bread itself, literal bread, can't fill. And if you don't get that emptiness filled by me, if that, address, if that hunger isn't addressed by me, you're going to starve forever. And all your revolutions are going to go awry unless you deal with this hunger. And all your revolutions trying to get more of that kind of bread will go awry unless you first have this kind of bread and you deal with the emptiness and the fears and the problems inside, in your soul, in your spirit. He says, you've got a hunger that only I can match uh, and meet. You know, Jean-Paul Sartre, of all things, has a very famous passage in which he is an atheist, existentialist philosopher, and he speaks to this hunger that Jesus is talking about. Uh, In this famous uh, little uh, uh, proverb or passage, uh, Sartre says this, quote, that God does not exist, I cannot deny. Atheist, okay. That God does not exist, I cannot deny. That my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. He says, I don't believe in God, but I'm hungry for God. I'm hungry for what only God can give. And Jesus says that the hunger that Sartre says has no cure, I've got the cure for. The bread that alone can satisfy that hunger, I give unto you. How? I can liberate you from all your inner fears. I can satisfy the real spiritual emptiness, not your stomach. And then you're empowered. So first of all, he says, sure, I'm your liberator. Here's my word. So he liberates, gives you life through the word. But secondly, he gives us life through deed. Because he doesn't just give bread, he gives miraculous bread. This is a miracle, of course, in how he feeds the, the, uh, them with bread. And let's talk for a minute now about the miracles for a second. It's very important. Why does Jesus do miracles? What do the miracles mean in general? Hmm? Now, we live in a, in a society in which people do spectacular special effects simply to be spectacular. And uh, it makes perfect sense for us. I, I think we almost, unless we talk about it, which we are right now, we, we probably assume that when Jesus does these miracles, that's what he's doing them for as well. What he's saying is, look what I can do. Look at my power. Look at my greatness. He's trying to get people to say, wow, look at your power and greatness. But now, if that's really the main reason that Jesus did miracles, why would he do stuff like this? This isn't the way. Very inconspicuous. Kind of, this isn't the way you really get, make people go, Wow by feeding people with bread. In fact, healing a cripple, that's wonderful. But my goodness, you know, we're 21st century people, and some of you, especially those in the area of marketing and things, you certainly can come up with better ideas for Jesus to get across the idea of his naked power. He said, hey, the bread stuff, the cripple stuff, that's really sweet, you know, for a certain kind of person. But you really want to show them your power? First of all, okay, you stand there on the Sea of Galilee, say, watch this, and then you fly up and you do loops over the Sea of Galilee, and then you come down... And everybody will go, oh, my God, you know, oh, Lord, command us. And here's another one. You say, nothing up my sleeve. And suddenly, you know, the ball of fire appears. And you say, see that tree over there? And you throw it at the tree, and it incinerates the tree. Everybody goes, what? I mean, who's bread, you know, healing cripples? If you want to get across your power, there's better ways to do it. And guess what? He never does that stuff, does he, ever? Never. Why not? Because his main point is not to get across the naked fact of his power. The point of his miracles is to show you the redemptive purpose of his power. You and I, as modern people, think of miracles mainly as spectacles. That is, suspensions of the natural order. Huh? Suspensions of the natural order. That's not what the miracles are mainly about. 
Jürgen Moltmann, the, uh, uh, the German philosopher, puts it like this. He says, Jesus' healings are the only natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. You hear what he's saying? God didn't make the world the way it is today. God didn't put, when God created the world, there was no hunger and, and, and starvation. There was no blindness and leprosy. There was no poverty and disease and death. Those things are unnatural. God didn't make the world like this. And that means that miracles of Jesus, they show that Jesus is no more happy with this world as it is now than we are. The miracles of Jesus are not primarily suspensions of the natural order. They are restorations of the natural order. They are pointing back to the world the way it was. No poverty, no disease, no death, no hunger, no blindness, no leprosy. But more than that, they're pointing forward to the new heavens and new earth that Jesus Christ is going to bring about at infinite cost to himself in which there will be no disease, no death, no hunger, no poverty, no injustice. Now to know that, that Jesus says someday we're all going to be eating bread in the new heavens and new earth, see, and we will die not, we will perish not, will be perfect to know we're going to have that bread in the new heavens and new earth. The knowledge of that, the guarantee of that is bread now for your soul. It's, it's hope. It's strength. It, it gives you everything you need to face the world. Look, there's so many people in, in some, there's people in this room, there's people in New York City, there's lots and lots of wonderful people who really aren't sure what they believe about God. You're secular people. And you also are fighting disease and hunger and injustice, right? And death. You're against it too. But you're doing it inside a worldview in which these things are totally natural. We're here by accident. You know, just, you know, explosions and lava and amino acids. We're here by accident. And we've, we've gotten here through a process of evolution, which is the strong eating the weak. You know, natural selection, survival of the fittest. Nature is red in tooth and claw. Here's what I want to ask you a question. How can you even really summons up moral outrage over all the oppression and the violence and, all, and the hunger and all that when it's absolutely natural? And abso- how do you summons up the hope and the strength to fight these things all of your life when you know that things are totally inevitable? But the gospel says these things are not natural and these things are not inevitable. And when you embrace the word of what Jesus says he has come to do and who he is and what he's accomplishing... And what he's going to accomplish, that's bread now. See, the hope of the future, the word about the future is bread for your souls now. It helps you face everything. It helps you keep going. It helps you get up and do it again. And Jesus says, if you experience through the word that inner liberation, and if you're empowered through this word of hope to deed, to healing people spiritually, socially, emotionally, psychologically, physically, you're part of my revolution. But it's not a revolution that anybody expects. Point three, it's also led by revolutionaries who are impossibly unqualified. Now, that's a third and very important point that this, this passage makes. And you, everybody saw it as you went through. Jesus goes out of his way to make this point. How does he do that? Well, like this. Uh, I love doing conferences in New York because I don't have to feed people at the conference. 
There's all these restaurants right around the corner. There's far more variety, far better food than we could possibly provide at the conference. So what you say is you have your conference and you're going through the agenda and you're teaching and you're doing that sort of thing. And then comes lunch. And then the, the little agenda says lunch on your own. Okay? Lunch on your own. So I said, okay, 12 o'clock, lunch on your own, be back here at 1.30, that kind of thing. All right, well, that's what the disciples very reasonably thought should be the agenda. Here's this bunch of people, and they're out in the middle of nowhere, right? Uh, and uh, Jesus is having the conference, and he's teaching them. He's wonderful. You know, he's a great conference speaker, Jesus Christ. You know, <laughs> think about it. And then uh, we get to lunch, and the disciples make a perfectly reasonable suggestion. He says, okay, Lord lunch on their own. Send them out, you know, and then let them go to the towns, you know. So they make a perfectly reasonable suggestion, and Jesus deliberately makes an absolutely irrational suggestion. He says, you feed them. You know, in, you know, in Greek, you don't need underlinings. The grammar, you, you, can, you can put the subject and predicate in such a way that you know where the emphasis is, and the emphasis is on you. You feed them. And, of course, they, they get their backs up. They make a very sarcastic. This is the most, you know, I think Matthew and Luke and John kind of tone down a little bit what they say. And Mark is a little more uh, uh, honest <laughs> about the sarcasm. And they say, you're asking us to do the impossible. And of course, that's Jesus' whole point. Jesus Christ says, until you see what I'm calling you to do is impossible, you are absolutely unqualified to do it. See, Jesus, look at how he even does this miracle. What he could have done is he could have, he could have fed them like Albus Dumbledore, which is you walk through the crowd and you wave your hand and these beautiful trays of, of food just appear right before them. Everybody goes, ah, like that. But that's not what he does. First of all, he works with the food they've got. He doesn't do this food out of... He uses the food they've got, which is inadequate. He uses their food, but it's inadequate for the job. And then only as the disciples go out with this inadequate food is it multiplied? Only as they go out does Jesus actually meet the needs. His power only happens through the disciples. Now, what is Jesus saying? Jesus says, what I'm calling you to do, my work in the world, is impossible. It will take a miracle. And if you go out knowing, if I tell people about Jesus' message, they don't want to hear. It'll take a miracle for them to listen. Or if you go out and say, I'm working for the spiritual, emotional, psychological, and social, and physical healing of people, but the problems and the brokenness is so bad, I just, you know, it's going to take a miracle. And if you go out knowing it's impossible, knowing you're unqualified, knowing it will take a miracle, and you go out to do it anyway, then and only then will Jesus do his restoration work through you. There's this great quote by a commentator on 2 Corinthians that puts it perfectly like this. Listen carefully. It is not God's intention that we should be in ourselves adequate to our tasks. Rather, he wants that, that we should be inadequate, that we should be inadequate. If we only accept the tasks which we think are adapted to our powers, we are not responding to the call of God. The church is always in a crisis always, and always will be. The church is always in a crisis and always will be. Difficulties, limitations, insoluble problems, lack of people and money, a menacing outlook, endless misunderstandings and misrepresentations. We are not only to do our work despite these things, they are precisely the conditions requisite for the doing of it. All the problems, all the difficulties, all the limitations, all the impossibilities, we're not only supposed to do our work that Jesus gives us 
in spite of those things, they are the requisites for it. Only the inadequate are adequate. Only when you know you're inadequate and you go do it anyway. Only when you know it's going to take a miracle for, for, for the things that you're being called to do by Jesus uh, to happen and you go do it anyway will he begin to work through you. So this is about a revolution, about a totally unexpected revolution, led by absolutely unqualified, impossibly unqualified revolutionaries. But fourth, this revolution is based on a shocking revolutionary act. See, all revolutions start with a shot, with some, you know, you, some revolutionary act. You invade the city or you storm the fortress or you storm the Bastille or you do something. That's, that's, that's when the revolution starts. And therefore, revolutions start with acts of violence. So did Jesus's. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought you said that Jesus is a revolutionary leader who brings life, not death. I did say that. Life for us. What is the revolutionary act on which this whole thing is based? You can see it in verse 41. It's a hint, but it's such a broad hint that it's hard to miss. In verse 41, he says, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, literally in the Greek he says, it says, he blessed and broke. Two verbs. He blessed and broke. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 22, just a little later in the, in the book, when Jesus is at the Lord's Supper, uh, the night he's about to, before he's about to die, it says, this is my body, he says. Same two verbs, same two verbs. He blessed and broke. This is pointing to that. Jesus is saying to everybody who's coming after him, trying to make him king, he says, you want a new Moses, You want a Moses that will feed you with bread in the wilderness. You want a Moses who will liberate you from oppression. You want a new Moses, a new Joshua. Well, I am not just a new Moses. I'm the ultimate Moses. I have come to do the ultimate exodus, not to liberate you just for a while from political uh, uh, oppression, but from sin and death itself. And here's how I'm going to do it. How? On the cross. Jesus on the cross looking at the people killing him, his enemies, the people rejecting him, he says, Father, forgive them. And then he died. In other words, he blessed the people who were killing him and broke. He broke. And if you see him blessing and breaking on the cross, A, as your substitute, and B, as your example, that'll make you a revolutionary. A, as your substitute. If you see him blessing and breaking on the cross for you as your substitute, that's going to make you a revolutionary. How? If you see a loaf of bread, if it stays whole, I can't eat it, right? So I starve. I die. I decay. I literally go to pieces. So if the bread stays whole, I go to pieces. But if I'm to be whole and eat the bread, it has to be broken to pieces. See? It's me or the bread. (laughs) Either your pieces or I'm pieces. And Jesus Christ said, I am the bread. And what he meant by that is, I was torn to pieces so that you could be whole. I went to the cross and I took the penalty that the human race deserved for all that we've done. I absorbed sin. I absorbed the punishment. I absorbed judgment. If I had stayed whole, you would have been broken to pieces. But I was broken to pieces so you would be whole. 
And when you see that, that you're saved not by what you do, but by what Christ has done, and therefore you can be adopted by grace, and you can say, Father, accept me because of what Jesus has done, and know that he loves you absolutely, totally, unconditionally, forever. That is what fills the inside emptiness. That is what liberates from fears. That will turn you into, that will liberate you internally when you see him doing it as your substitute. But then secondly, if you see him doing this as your example, he blessed his enemies and he broke. Oh my, that is, re- that is revolutionary. Do you know why? Look, revolutionaries always look around at the culture and society and they say, I want to subvert it. All revolutionaries, including Christians, you look at the culture around you, the dominant culture, the dominant society, and you say, I want to subvert this. See? Okay, you know what you see out there? You see me first power. The world is built on me first power, right? My life, see, is to be whole. You are broken for me. Your life broken for me. Your life poured out for me. That's how we do it in the world. That's how we get up the ladder. We exploit. We elbow people out. See, your life broken for me. But Jesus Christ says, I'm the son of God. I come from ultimate reality, and here's how I live my life. My life broken for you. And if you take that dynamic into the center of your life, a man dying for his enemies... That will turn you into someone who subverts the culture, who lives in a complete opposite way from the culture. And when you move out into this society, not living for yourself, but pouring yourself out not only in service for our own type, but for people like Jesus did, who are very different, who don't believe what we do at all, that will subvert the culture. That will do it. Because every other revolutionary, think about this, when you come into their revolution, you go out and you take power in the name of your leader. That's what revolutionaries do. They take power in the name of their leader. But Jesus Christ says, if you want to be on my movement, you lose power in the name of the leader. You go out there and you serve. You go out and you lose power. That's how I saved you. And now that comes into your life, and that's the dynamic that I want you to live your life on. See, look, secularism makes people selfish, individualistic. Why not? Who's to say what's right and wrong? Religion makes people self-righteous and tribal. But the gospel transforms you on the inside, then turns you out to live a life of service for all the people around you, including the people who don't believe like you do, because that's how Jesus saved you. That's what he did. We become a counterculture. We're different than they are. we're, We're very different. We want to subvert the way the dominant culture works. But the way we do it is through sacrificial loving service to the people around us. If you want to become a revolutionary, you have to do it the way Jesus did, and that is you have to lose power, not take power in his name. You say, what do I mean by that? You have to become vulnerable. What do you mean by that? Let me give you three examples to close. Giving, tithing. If you give minimum 10% of your income away to charity, to the poor, to the community, to the church, and maybe more, maybe 12%, maybe 15% as time goes on, if you're plowing your money in that kind of proportions out into people's lives, Boy, does that bring healing. Boy, does that bring liberation. Boy, does that change the community. Does that make the community better? But you're vulnerable. You don't have it all socked away. And my goodness, we live in an economically unstable world, don't we now? So yeah, of course, if you give like that, if you give the way Jesus calls you to give, if you give like that, you're becoming vulnerable. You're losing power for the sake of other people. But if you don't do it, you're no revolutionary. You're part of the problem. You're part of the culture out there we're trying to subvert. If you hold on to your money, 
instead of giving it away like that, you're no revolutionary of Jesus's. And you probably haven't actually had the internal, seeing him do it as your substitute, transformation, or you'd be able to do the external, seeing him do this as an example. Let me give you another example. Relationships. Jesus says we have to forgive everybody who wrongs us. We have to work like crazy to keep our relationships right. If you see somebody over there, uh, it's got something against you, or if you have something against them, you have to go to them again and again and again and say, I don't think we got it right yet. We've got to get this thing straight. You have to forgive. You have to reconcile. You can never give up. You can never just stew. You can just never let a root of bitterness grow. And boy, if you're in a community where people are doing that all the time, oh, what a great community that can be in the long run. But in the short run, oh my gosh, how, what hard work it is. And it makes you vulnerable, emotionally vulnerable. I don't want to go and talk to people about my feelings. I don't want to go and let people know that I'm having struggles with them. You, it, it makes you vulnerable. It, it, it's a loss of power. It's often a loss of face. It's, it's, but if you don't do it, you're no revolutionary. You're part of the problem. You're part of that culture we're trying to subvert, don't you see? Or if you're just like most people in New York City, and that is you come here to work on your career. And you know what? If you really give yourself to volunteer work at the church or volunteer work out in the city with the poor, or if you really give yourself just to care about your neighborhood, if you really, really try to make this city a great place, you're not going to do as well in your career. Of course you're not. It would be much better if you spent all of your time working on your career, but then you're not, part of, you're not a revolutionary, not Jesus kind of revolutionary. No way. And you ought to ki- don't kid yourself. Inside, you are still in bondage to fears, need to prove yourself. You haven't experienced his liberating power. If there's anybody here who's not even sure, he said, I don't think I've ever really embraced Jesus like you're talking about. Just remember what he said, I'm the bread. He, he doesn't say, I am the teacher who will show you how to save yourself. He says, I save you. I live the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died. I was broken for you. And to really embrace him is not just to try to be like him. It's to see what he's done for you and ask God, please accept me because of what he has done. And that will change you. And there's anybody here who says, well, I've embraced Jesus and I'm trying to do his work, but oh my goodness, it's hard. Remember, only the inadequate are adequate. Let's pray. Father, now we're going to take the bread, we're going to take the cup, and this is a time for us to remember what you've done and to see the revolutionary act on which our movement is based and to see how really revolutionary this revolution is because we don't take power, we lose it. We subvert the dominant paradigm But we subvert the dominant paradigm through this kind of service based on what you did for us on the cross, based on the inner liberation that you have done when we receive your word, based on the pattern of our lives that we are able to live in sacrificial service to others because of the hope we have that you are going to bring us a new heavens and new earth. Now let all this mind-boggling stuff coalesce and melt our hearts as we feed on you through faith and the Spirit. Make us like your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.